Coming up on Tech News today, good night, Zune. It's not dying as a brand name, but it looks like the hardware may be going away. Also, a focus on what's going on in Japan. We cover a lot of the technology issues as well as get some firsthand reports from listeners of TNT uh, that are on the scene, both emails and voicemails. And a couple of rants, one about AT&T. Are they lying to us about network congestion? And another one about what really protects intellectual property. All that and more coming up. you love from people you trust this is twit bandwidth for tech news today is provided by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com is Tech News Today for Tuesday, March 15th, the Ides of March 2011. Tech News Today is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Improve your conference calls and keep everyone on the same page when you share your screen with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash technews. Welcome to Tech News Today. I'm Tom Merritt. I'm Brian Brushwood. And I'm Jason Howell. And this is the show where we kick around the tech news of the day along with you. Try to make sense of it all. Sarah Lane took an extra day in Austin, Texas to rest her her head her sinuses. Her ears. Yeah, her rest ears. her ears. I mean, you can't fly. It's like, uh, you ever see that movie, The Firm? You can't fly and dive within 24 hours. And that's what it's like. When <laughs> I she, asked her, I was like, well, what did the doctor say about flying? She's like, she said, well, the doctor said that busted eardrums do heal. <laughs> it won't hurt forever. <laughs> like, a backup plan. You should stay another day. I think you really should. So, uh, so that so she's not here, but thankfully we've got Brian Brushwood uh, with us today. Welcome uh, back to the show. This is the first. Is this the first time you've done the show by Skype? Yes. No. Yeah, no, because I was on another no. time. Okay, but, you were uh, on one other time by Skype. Tell you what, though, it does feel like it was only yesterday. You and I were in the same city together. And yet, when, in it fact, was, it was I, two I days The ago. day before yesterday. <laughs> That's right. That's the amazing <laughs> part. All right, well, uh, let's start off the uh, the show with a sad story of the demise of Zune. At least, uh, uh, is it Bloomberg that was reporting? Microsoft would cease development of its uh, family of Zune-branded music players due to weak demand. Uh, Bloomberg reports Zune will be survived by a software and services platform. Uh, Windows 7, Phone 7, by the way, embeds a Zune player, so the brand would not go away, just they wouldn't make any more standalone devices. We hardly knew. They, uh, they ask in lieu of flowers that you spend money at the iTunes store on anything but the Beatles. <laughs> in lieu of flowers... Please squirt, squirt. A, an appropriate song <laughs> to your friends. <laughs> Dave McLaughlin, Senior Business Development Manager for Zune, uh, responded to this and said, we were completely frank about this year's Zune hardware being the Windows Phone 7 phones, and we continue to both sell and fully support the Zune HD line of products, and as I've promised, we continue to bring new apps and games to the platform. More of those are in the works, I promise you. Uh, look, this makes sense, and certainly if they're going to invest a lot of time and effort into doing Windows Phone, it would make sense that it can fill some of the same niche and have very Zune-like features to it. But you got to realize massive, massive success uh, with Apple continuing to make iPods to this very day. Music players are far from dead, and you and I were talking about this earlier, Tom. 
you saw this as like, well, this isn't just the death of Zune, it's the death of iPods and music players. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I think that Microsoft's doing exactly the right thing, and I, I actually got a chance to talk to Paul Thorat on Windows Weekly about this when Leo was out. Zune is a good brand, and even if they change the name, that team can continue to take what they've learned from Zune, but the idea of making a, a standalone device, I, I think that, that ship has sailed. Not that nobody will make them. I will continue to see iPod touches, and I think we'll continue to see iPod shuffle type devices from a, a wide variety of manufacturers uh, but that's that's not the game to be in right now well I would have agreed with you three months ago it was obvious to me that like uh, if there were what's smaller than a iPod nano and an iPod nothing when it's built into my iPhone automatic automatically but I worked a high school event and I was shocked I did my full magic show I must have signed 60 standalone music players. These are all kids who don't have computers. They don't have laptops and they don't have, um, uh, you know, their phones. They're not allowed to have phones at certain age. So instead they use the iPod Touch as their primary way to contact and interact with people. I get emails from people all over the world about the Scam School show asking for advice or suggesting a trick. All of them at the bottom say, sent for my iPod Touch. Uh. I, think, I think there's a very robust market for music players, and I think for whatever reason, they undermarket. How many Zunes did you sign? Well, and that's just it. And uh, obviously, there's, there's a reason that the Zune is dead. How many Creative but Labs did you sign? It's a bummer because the Zune HD, by all accounts, was a great device. Yeah. And I loved what Zune was trying to do with a flat fee access to dozens of thousands of songs to explore music that you would never otherwise encounter. Which is uh, not going away, by the way. That, yes, you yes. know that's the key point to take away from you. I, well, I think I think a lot of people have a tendency to want to root for you know oh I'm on Team Apple oh I'm on Team Microsoft and nobody wants to root for Microsoft but uh, I I think people on Team Apple want to be like ah you suck Zune but you don't understand if you're a fan of music then you only gain by having two competitors nipping at each other's heels. This is this is a sad day for for music lovers in general if the Zune really is. No longer a contender. You know, the Zune phone is Windows Phone 7. Zune is still around. There's still competition. Where there's not competition is in the standalone MP3 player market. And I would argue that Zune HD was getting close, but Zune HD was not a competitor to the iPod Touch. The iPod Touch is a small tablet. Right. But the, you know, and the, the competitor to the iPod Touch are things like the Galaxy Tab and the BlackBerry Playbook. Right. Well, and, they, and the iPod Touch is a big ace in the hole, of course, was the App Store. And when there just wasn't as many games, if you couldn't get your Angry Birds on your Zune, what was the point? Um, I, I, I don't know, because especially with the Windows phone having trouble now, I mean, what did we find them discounted for 99 cents on Amazon a, a few that, weeks that back? That was true a few weeks back, right? It's, it, it hasn't uh, come out of the gate all gangbusters. You're right. I mean, is it, I mean, is it, is it choking? Is it dying and withering on the vine right now? What, Windows Phone 7? I mean, I, we yeah. could do a whole other show on that. I mean, okay. I, no, well, it is not. There are new Windows Phone 7s even in today's show that, that are being announced. So it is far. Windows okay. Phone 7 is far from dying. Well, as long as the Zune is still a player, and it's like even if all Zune does is act as a way to keep Apple on its toes, that makes me perfectly happy. All right. Let's move on to Time Warner Cable coming out with their TV app for iOS, uh, specifically iPad. The key to this, I mean, Comcast has a thing, Dish has a thing. The key to this is that Time Warner Cable's app allows you to stream 32 of the cable channels you subscribe to live over the app. 
Dish points out we can do this, but they do it with sling technology where you're accessing your device and bringing it over because Dish owns the sling box. Uh, Time Warner Cable is streaming them straight over the internet direct to, to your app. So it's a couple different ways to approach the problem. But this is the first, these are the first people to do that. And this is what we want, right? I subscribe to cable. Maybe I'd continue to subscribe to cable if I can get all of those channels streaming over the internet. Uh, so, Brian, you, you live in a Time Warner cable and area. And that's just it. I am a Time Warner house. And this story came out at me out of nowhere. I was so stoked. I immediately installed the app. You want to see an exclusive here? Oh, yeah. Let's that. see it. Because I'm excited about this. The idea of having 32 channels streaming on an app. It's right big. to me. We got the logo. Yeah. Ooh. Time Warner cable. Watch this. We're going to watch some TV. All right. Here it comes. Yeah. The programming you have requested is only available when you are accessing this video service in your home. Using a cable modem out there. Well, that's baloney. The whole reason I want this is so that when I'm like, you know, out at the park, uh, you know, I can I can stream my stuff. I don't want to have to be at home. I can just watch my TV when I'm at home. And I guess well, I can use it in the kitchen or something, but that becomes a lot more limited. Wait, wait, wait. Not, Brian, aren't I'm you at home? Not, uh, well, that's the thing. That's I'm not going to be harsh on them for wanting you to watch it at home because this is a soft way to launch the app and get the technology working. But I am at my home and I am using my time <laughs> cable modem at the moment, which all means right. all I have is a program that just shows me this screen over and over again. It's so ridiculous. it's a little buggy out of the gate. Sounds like. Uh, yes, a little bit right. buggy out of the gate. Is if, if by buggy you mean 100% non-functional for a paying customer, then yes, a <laughs> yes. little bit buggy. We, we in corporate PR call that a little bit buggy. <laughs> Not working at all? A little bit buggy. That's right. All right. Uh, great news for customers of British Telecom in the UK. Uh, it, well, at least customers of, of certain services they provide. Uh, BT is making their UK Infinity service uh Bandwidth cap free. They had caps. I think it was 350 gigabyte cap. They're taking them away. They're How saying, often if, do you ever hear this kind exactly. of story? Exactly. Uh, here's the quote As BT continues to invest in the network and network bandwidth, we can now remove these restrictions and ensure the experience of the wider customer base. Uh, on completion, there will be no individual user controls targeted at atypical users on our BT Total Broadband and BT Infinity products. There are still caps on some other levels of service, but not on these. They do continue to reserve the right to do network management, to do throttling in certain situations uh, where there's large amounts of bandwidth being used. So you can quibble with that if you want. But there is no cap in place as a user. Dude, more freedom on the internet is almost always a good thing. And this is certainly something I think all of us could be very excited about. In fact, Tom, I'm going to say that this is the beginning of a new era where all companies are going to realize that bandwidth caps are not helpful and that they restrict our use of the products that we're paying for. And I anticipate all companies will soon take this step. No, I, I, I think that's a, a fair thing, right? A BT lays it out. We continued to invest in the network and network bandwidth, and now we don't have to put in caps. We weren't lying before. We just didn't have the infrastructure, but we worked hard. We spent the money. We've got the infrastructure, and now we can do it. Uh, so here in the United States, also some news. Starting May 2nd, AT&T will impose 150 gigabyte monthly limits on its currently uncapped DSL service. While it's that's fiber to the Node, Uverse subscribers get a 250 gigabyte. So they're capping DSL and fiber. Wait, that's I think that's Jason's cue to play the sad trombone again. How about how about this one? <laughs> well, apparently my prediction did not pan out, Tom Merritt. Uh, industry <laughs> analyst Dave Burstein actually posted on Twitter that AT&T lied 
to the Wall Street Journal about the need to do this because AT&T said, well, we've got too much network uh, con congestion, so, you know, we've got to put this in these caps. Yeah, no, this is a hard problem to fix, right? That's the thing. Because here in America, I don't know how it is in the UK, where all of a sudden they're giving away their bandwidth caps, but here in America, it's hard to fix people using too much bandwidth, right? Uh, well, unlike cable in DSL, uh, each customer has a connection direct to the CO, to the central office, uh, and it's aggregated in the DSLAM. That's the uh, access multiplexer. Uh, so all they need to do if there's network congestion is add capacity to the DSLAM. Uh, okay. you, don't, you don't have that people sharing on the node issue that you have in cable. Okay, so maybe it's not complicated, but, but it certainly has got to be very expensive. It's got to be very expensive, and that's why they have to do these caps, right? Uh, well, it's relatively inexpensive to upgrade the DSLAM or, and the backhaul connections to relieve congestion. There might be other congestion problems occurring at the local and regional switches, but you can, you can upgrade those. So, no, it's, it's not particularly costly from what I've read. Okay, all right, all right, no, okay, so it's not costly, but these guys don't have much money, right? They're being squeezed because there's a recession on, right? That's why they don't have the money to invest, and that's why they need the caps, right? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Brian. Uh, I looked it up. AT&T posted $20 billion in net income on revenues of $124 billion uh, for 2010. $7.8 billion of that $20 billion uh, was from Wireline. Most of their money, most of their profits come from wireless, uh, but what, yeah, they, they, they made pl plenty of money. Um, so they, they've got money costs, to spend. Costs are rising, though. You got a plan? Oh, that's for interesting. Yeah, because you know you can't if you've got a lot of money, but you know you're going to be spending a lot of money. You want to save it, right? Right. Yeah. So that's why we need caps. Well, uh, AT and T's expenses to operate its network, pay its employees, do network engineering, planning, buy gear, and even pay property taxes uh, dropped three point two percent in twenty ten. Ah. Uh, well, I'm starting to wonder whether or not AT&T's new 150 gigabyte DSL data cap is justified, sir. Well, sure, we can add capacity, and sure, we're making record profits, and sure, our costs are going down, but this is a tough business, Brian, and there are no competitors to hold our feet to the fire, so we're going to do whatever we want. That seems to be the message here. Uh, well, good for them. Good for ATT shareholders? Question mark. I don't know. I, I'm trying to find a silver lining on this, and it's killing me. No, they it's are. They. I. I would venture to say they are lying about network congestion, and I. I am willing to be proven wrong by those who know. Uh, but as far as I can tell. Uh, DSL subscribers are going down, and yet they're putting in caps. Uh, profit is going up, and yes, they're claim yet they're claiming they can't invest in infrastructure. I just I just don't understand it. Um, now the uh, TSS lock in the chat room points out that uh, that it's 150 gigabyte on DSL and it's 250 on UVerse, uh, right. and that there's a $10 per 50 gigabyte overage fee. And uh, one of the articles that I read suggested that this may be an attempt to set with really high caps and really permissible penalties, just to get the idea in your mind that it's okay to have an upper bound on how much use of the product that you're paying for. You know what? That would be fine, actually. If, if AT&T came out and said, look, we're going to, you know, our business model is to make more money and we're going to start charging per bit. But to get people used to it, we're going to put a really high cap in and we'll just charge you $10 per every five gigabytes over. That'd be fine. But that's not what they're saying. They're, they're telling a sob story to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, there's just so many people streaming video and so much network congestion, you know, and we just can't afford the infrastructure. So we've got to put, we don't it's not that we want to make money so much as we just got to do this. It's just, you know, it's just the way the Internet works. Uh, all right. Thanks, jerks. Yeah, exactly.
Uh, yeah, VQ is like, that would not be fine if they did that. And I, I'm not saying I would be fine with that as a customer, but at least I wouldn't consider them hypocrites if they just came out and said that. Yes, I can totally see where you're coming from. All right, let's take a uh, quick break. And thanks to thank the folks at GoToMeeting. I, first of all, uh, not only for sponsoring Tech News Today, uh, but they had a great event at South by Southwest. Uh, some free breakfast and everything it was very nice. Good to meet the GoToMeeting guys. Mm -hmm. They're really nice folks, really good folks. Uh, and they help you eliminate frustration. Do you like frustration, Brian? Uh, you know, I find it very annoying. It, it causes an emotion in me. It's, it's hard to put a word to it, but I get all wound up and tight like I'm not accomplishing what I want. Is there a word for that? Uh, that's frustration. Yeah. That's what I feel. I, I, think that, I think that's right. I want less frustration. Have you ever felt bored and unproductive, especially if you're on a call, like some kind of conference call, some kind of meeting call? Can I tell you the honest truth? A friend of ours worked for a very large company and he was staying at my house and he told me, he showed me screenshots of the 18-hour conference call he was on on his iPhone where he accomplished nothing all day. It was a colossal waste of his time. Well, people go off track. People lose interest. They don't know what's going on. They can't see the other person or what the other person's talking about. That's where GoToMeeting can help. GoToMeeting keeps everyone on the same page during the conference call. It makes it more efficient. Everyone can see your screen. They can follow along. Everyone's more focused, more interested, more engaged. And that means you get what you need done faster. You save time. You're more productive. Uh, you can do product demos. You can do training sessions. You can collaborate on documents, uh, weekly update calls, just pretty much any type of conference call you can think of. Sign up today and you will get a free 30-day trial just because you're listening to us talk right now. Go to gotomeeting.com. What you're saying? Uh, you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to meeting equals maximum no frustration. If you, if you want, want maximum no frustration... You must you go, go to gotomeeting.com slash tech news right now. Otherwise, you're going to be frustrated. And do you want to be frustrated? And however much frustration you have, you can have maximum no frustration. Even I guess you would say less frustration. Yeah. But I like more no frustration. More, maximum no frustration is available right now. Have all the meetings you want. One low flat rate. Foin and, foin and voice over IP. Foin and, and voice over IP. That's a That's new way of doing it. Uh, anyway, phone, phone and voiceover AP are included for free. Why would you want frustration? What are you, a masochist? Get maximum no frustration at gotomeeting.com slash tech news. And we thank them for their support of tech news today. On to Leo Apotheker and his Apotheolipse press conference. I like that. Uh, he had, they, it was Hewlett Packard's strategy day in San Francisco yesterday. Uh, and so we were a little curious uh, what he was going to say. Let's take a listen to Mr. Apotheker's first big uh, appearance as CEO of HP. The opportunities in the cloud are extraordinary. And we're positioned to lead with our portfolio and to lead with our customers who need a trusted partner to help navigate the journey ahead. We're going to lead with our left. Now, how did, how did James Bond respond when he said that to him? As he <laughs> no, was Mr. Apotheker, I expect you to die. That's right. <laughs> Wait, that's the, that's the opposite line. No, um, I wanted him to be holding a Oh, come on. It's easy to make fun of any person who's German. with Dude, it's German. an awesome accent. It is that really, yeah. That sounds like the evil villain. It's awesome. But what he was actually saying, uh, to get back to the news was that uh, HP is going to launch its own cloud service platform and a related open application store 
within the next couple of years. In fact, the application store should be coming sometime between 2011 and 2012. So uh, HP is moving into the space where they compete not only with people like IBM, but Google as well, being a cloud service provider. You want to get your email, you want to get some app store, you want to do some stuff on the web, HP wants to be there. They they sell the devices, they figure why, you know, we should, we should keep making money after we sell the box to somebody. This could be difficult though, because a lot of folks who are uh, what are called VARs, value-added resellers, are not happy about this message because they look at it and say, well, wait a minute, what's in it for us? You know, we're yeah. used to taking the, uh, the the HP brands and kind of adding some value to it, putting some software on it uh, and, and, and moving it along. And, and we're in the supply chain that way. If you're selling the cloud infrastructure, then they don't need to buy from us. Cut them out. Of, they're cutting them out of the supply chain. I was really surprised by this story because nothing about Hewlett Packard, HP, uh, had in my mind was branded or associated with the cloud at all. Have they ever done anything like this before? Do they have any experience in the cloud computing? They have some, but this is yeah, this is new. This is a new business for them. Uh, they they certainly have lots of of, of enterprise experience. Uh, let's let's not short them there. But they have never done what Amazon has done. They have never done what IBM has done uh, at that scale. So this is this is something that's you know. It's the kind of thing you have to do if you want to grow, uh, but it's certainly uh, risky. They, they also do talk have a point in that they say they provide hardware for seven of the ten largest cloud services. And so from that perspective, I think it might be the kind of thing where they just found themselves sitting on a gold mine and they're like, why are other people making money on this? Why don't we jump on it? But the question, of course, is how do their clients who are buying all this stuff enjoy their provider suddenly becoming a competitor. That, I yeah. would imagine that would not go over really well. Well, they're sitting, there, they're sitting there on the gold mine selling pickaxes to people and then all of a sudden went, wait a minute, what if we just took these pickaxes in ourselves? And so they yeah. started going into the gold mine and all the guys who were buying pickaxes are like, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? And there's an awkward moment where they're walking in and they're like, all right, so how do we do this, guys? We've been giving you pickaxes, <laughs> yeah. but we'll hey, hit the wall. How do you use this pickaxe to get the gold out? Right. Uh, this will be really interesting. I know that they've tried a lot of different strategies in the past. Um, this is so far in, in, and I mean this purely from a marketing and branding perspective, it's so far of what I perceive their, their core competency. I'll be really interested to see how they pull this off or if anyone says, let me, let me you know, go to the HP cloud land for my apps. Uh, also, they mentioned that uh, WebOS, uh, HP Touchpad coming in June, it uh, looks like it, uh, there's a leak from a retailer that might be coming for $500 in June. Uh, they'll have WebOS for PC. That Remember, they're going to put WebOS on all of their Windows machines that they sell uh, as a kind of a top layer. And those that PC beta will definitely be out by year's end. They plan to ship 100 million WebOS devices this year, including tablets like the touchpad, phones like the Pre, uh, PCs, and printers with WebOS as well. How does the WebOS stack up against Android? Uh, in what way? I don't well, I mean, as far as, um, uh, as, as far as robustness, as far as ease of use or whatever, because here's what I'm wondering is if I'm a developer, right now I only have to make my product twice. I only have to make it once for iOS and then I make it again for Android. Uh, I, with WebOS coming in, they've got, they've got to grab the market share and they've got to please the developers and give them some reason to make their apps again because if well, you're going to... you, you got to do that by getting market penetration. you got to sell a bunch of these devices. So that's, uh, and that is why it's, I think it's uh, smart to put WebOS 
on Windows because then all of a sudden, if you make an app for WebOS, you're not just making it for the phone. You're also making it for the printer. You're making it for the tablet. You're making it for a PC. It just runs everywhere at once. I think that's what they're betting on. Whether that actually will come to pass, whether people will actually use WebOS on a PC, or I don't know. And, and the thread that ties both of these parts of the announcement together is how is Microsoft going to take this? Because Microsoft's Azure platform is their cloud enterprise, and HP has been using that. So now HP says, I'm going to eat a little bit of your lunch there. They're going to keep using Azure, but they're also going to do their own. And then they say, and you know what? Uh, we're going to ship our own tablets. We'll, we'll keep shipping Windows tablets, but we're going to keep shipping WebOS tablets. So Microsoft's got to be a little concerned about this, I would think. Uh, I would imagine. I mean, it's certainly dusting everything up. I also wonder how much of the decision to go with WebOS comes with the fact that, I don't know, we got it. We got it from that. Palm thing that we did a while back. We're sitting on it. Well, that's why they, but they, but that's also why they bought Palm. They're like, they didn't buy Palm so that they could lose money on the pre. They bought Palm to okay. get WebOS. They're like, that That was what they were after. And and now, now they got to make it pay for itself. All right. Well, then get that horse a running. Yeah, that's right. Get those pickaxes. Get that money on WebOS. Move. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we can solve piracy. We've got two, two good ideas here. Uh, one comes from the Media Piracy Project, which is not a project to go pirate media, by the way. They were analyzing it. Uh, it's three guys in a dorm room for the Media Piracy Project. I know how to legitimize us. Let's give us a name. The Media Piracy Project is not that. The Media Piracy Project comes from the Social Science Research Council. They're a sociology think tank. They've been around since the 20s. Uh, they did a three-year study into media piracy in emerging economies uh, concentrated on countries like Russia, Mexico, and India and essentially found out that all of this stuff about suing people, making it illegal, arresting folks, none of that works. Uh, no amount of anti-piracy enforcement will change the economics that drive copyright theft. You've got to make things cheaper. Uh, they cite the example of Russia where legal versions of the Dark Knight sell for $15, which is roughly the same price you'd pay in the United States. But because wages are so much lower in Russia, that price represents a much higher percent of a consumer's income, the equivalent of selling The Dark Knight for $75. Pirate versions can be obtained for less than a third of that price. So, boom, you go and you get the pirate version. Right. Well, And the study also confirms, from a sociological standpoint, these companies, these countries where piracy is rampant are, are no less moral. They're no more likely to actually steal something or, or kill other people or whatever. It's just a case where the economics of the situation are such. I mean, here in America, try on for size. Imagine every piece of media that you buy instead of pirate suddenly costs five times as much. If you wanted that video game, suddenly it's $250. If you want that DVD, it's suddenly $75. Uh, I think in many ways with services like Steam, with the, with the iTunes store, we finally have uh, a, a low enough price and an easy enough way to get a hold of media legitimacy that we're finally emerging. Many people are emerging from the dark days of rampant piracy here in the United States. But I, if I, all of a sudden stuff costs that much more, we'd be rolling back to piracy super fast. Uh, in the United States, we can stop piracy, at least according to Daniel Castro, an analyst at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, by putting in bandwidth caps. What? See, he says the government should allow pricing structures and usage caps that discourage online piracy. Uh, because if you have a lot of bandwidth, that's all you use it for, it appears to be his contention. Ah, uh, I don't, we're, I mean, look, of all the places to try to sell us on that, a network where we stream live video and that we podcast out giant chunks of high quality 
data to people who who want to consume it. Uh, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous and offensive. And Daniel stupid. Castro also suggests that deep packet inspection be routinely deployed by ISPs in order to scan subscriber traffic for potential copyright infringement. Uh, and Castro has a solution. If courts crack down on the practice, the law should be changed. Because, <sighs> frankly, uh, intellectual property is the only reason our country exists. If there were is no that- intellectual property, we wouldn't. We, we shouldn't even be alive. Brian? There are certain times I just want so bad for Cory Doctorow to magically be at my side to just grab the mic and just assail this kind of argument. Oh, it's utter, utter crap. It's, it's born of the idea that the intellectual property industry is somehow the most important industry in the world. And that if, if it has even the slightest threat, that we should bring the full power of the law to bear against it. It's worse than murder. Uh, you know, we should prioritize it above everything. And I'm sick of seeing it. Should there be laws against piracy? Sure. Should there be protections for copyright? Sure. But they are so far already beyond what is needed to create creativity to encourage creativity uh that this sort of stuff is just ridiculous it's laughable what we we should be having a conversation about is what will happen if we had no copyright law and how do we protect against the negatives of that rather than saying you know we've got some copyright law but uh, you know what it's, it's going to take 1% off my bottom line this year. You know, my industry's in decline. And so I really need the FBI to give up hunting actual criminals and start cracking down on copyright law. And we should have the uh, government mandate bandwidth caps on all ISPs because that'll help to g- deter the pirates. And you know what? You know, let's just make the world entirely inconvenient for everyone because I need my, uh, I need my industry to grow by 15% every year. Well, this, this to you and me sounds like a ridiculous solution to handle things that way. But you and I haven't spent gazillions of dollars to finance, you know, different members of Congress to get legislation, you know, to get certain people, I don't want to say under my thumb, but to get people to support my agenda. Like you and I don't have the massive hammer of government to use to solve our qualms or problems with copyright law. Uh, and the part that drives me, and you know, these people who do, of course, they're going to use it if that's what they can get away with. The crazy part is if their goal really is to make the maximum amount of money from the maximum number of people, then study after study shows that if you lower the price and you increase the ease of purchase, you can tackle piracy. What was the study that said that the optimum price for an MP3 was a nickel? Because at a nickel, nobody would ever bother to torrent anything. Nobody right. would ever bother to even put it on a USB to give to their friends. Everybody's just like, oh yeah, no, no, no. Give, me, give, me the whole, give me the whole album. And Easy. the objection is we won't be able to continue our industry at that, at that price level. And, and, the, and, and, the, and that is the wrong conversation to have. We should not be having a conversation on Capitol Hill about whether your industry will survive. What these copyright laws are meant to protect is creativity and will there be innovation and new art. And at that For price level, time. at five cents, will there be innovation and new art? I think we would find the answer is yes. Absolutely. And it should be pointed out to pr- protect innovation and creativity for a limited time. This, this business that 100 years after the death of Walt Disney, the company will still own Mickey Mouse is well, ridiculous. This is another case of I mean, uh, politicians that are bought and paid for. He's not for, dead. What's that? I mean, he's not actually dead. Are you talking about he's frozen? He's in, yeah, he's in cryogenic. He's in the middle of Space Mountain? Yeah. I saw him once when we were going around a loop. <laughs> exactly. He was like... So that makes the law a little... Yeah, it's hard to, have, to interpret that. But you're absolutely right. <laughs> I just this I, I am so tired of this argument being hijacked and you you nailed it Brian which is we don't have the lobbyists up there making our side of the argument that's that's the biggest problem well, all I'm right depressed.
I, I want to devote a good portion of the show today to uh, discussing what's going on in, in Japan. There are a lot of issues there. We're not going to be CNN. We're not going to cover every issue of the earthquake and the disaster relief. There are great places to find resources there, but we can help point you towards some of those resources, and we can tell you a little bit about the technology. Most important, we can actually give you some on-the-scene reports from listeners in the Tech News Today audience who have been good enough to call and write us uh, from Japan. I want to start off with the economic side of things, not because the human side isn't important, Important. It is much more important. It's extremely important. But you can't ignore the effect. It's interesting to see, like, well, how is this going to affect business? Uh, and, and I was listening to the Economist podcast this morning, and they said, look, we always tend to overestimate the economic impact of natural disasters because they are so dramatic. Uh, it turns out usually they don't have nearly the effects that you think they're going to have. And there's a, uh, a an article out today in the San Jose Mercury News essentially saying that same thing. It looks like there's going to be a tightness in the flash memory market, uh, but most of the industry seems to be okay. One of the lucky things is most industrial complexes are located in the south of Japan. So they weren't as impacted by by the earthquake as the companies up in the north. Uh, the two most pressing concerns for the industry are damage to the transportation infrastructure and reliability of power according to Dale Ford at IHSI Supply. It could take as long as two months to resolve those problems. And I'm seeing that in a lot of places I'm reading. Uh, it's not so much that the factories can't work. or get you know, The factories you know, are having a hard time getting back. But keeping them running uh, and having the efficiencies of a constantly running factory is an issue because of the brownouts and the power issues. Uh, and also transportation. It's like you can make all the flash memory you want, but if you can't get it on a train and get it to a boat, and then get it shipped or get it to an airplane, uh, it's going to be hard to sell it. Yeah, and it, at first it feels a little bit morbid. Obviously, people are dealing with a massive, massive crisis on the other side of the world, but here in America, and I know we have listeners and viewers all over the world, uh, it, it feels a little bit weird to be like, yeah, but well, my gizmos continue to be on time. But it, it is important to take a moment and take a long view and, and recognize what's going to happen to the distribution logistics of the way not only our, our electronics, but but all the imports that we get from Japan right. and all the affected areas. Yeah, it's definitely not the most important story coming out of Japan, but that doesn't mean that it's should be ignored entirely. Uh, some other uh, really good stories coming out of Japan. Uh, and Gadget reports today that AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, Dish Networks, Comcast, and Cox Communications have all announced plans under which free calls can be made to, the, to Japan, and as well as free text messages in a lot of cases, between now and March 31st. So, you know, for all the vitriol we were spewing at some of these companies earlier today, this is a good move, and I applaud them for it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And, and look, this is one of those times when it's like uh, there's nothing but good to be done. You do good for the people. You do good publicity for yourself. Uh, we know the folks over at Apple kept their Wi-Fi on. They were allowing people to come in and actually bunk down in the, uh, the Apple stores. Um, it's brief moments like this where to see everyone come together and put aside, you know, the bottom line for a brief moment makes everyone... Good. Yeah, that, that Apple story is really touching. Kevin Rose had uh, some emails that he posted on his blog about, you know, it, it became that scene from the movie where everyone gathers around the electronics store and watches the TV broadcast, except for the modern era. Everyone was in the Apple store watching the live stream on the uh, laptops that they have set up there. Also, Facebook set up a Japan earthquake page for users to find information about disaster relief. Google has set up a crisis response project. We've talked about in the, that in the past. Although an interesting spin on that, uh, Google is now encouraging people to take photos of the posters with people's names with their cell phones and send them uh, to an address tohoku.anpi.google at Picasso Web. 
Uh, and once sent, the photo will be automatically uploaded to the Picasso web album uh, where people can can view this and, and keep track of, of each other. Uh, NTT Docomo, Japan's largest wireless carrier, has set up a database where you can enter the cell phone number of a person to confirm his or her safety. Uh, so just uh, you know, a lot of coming together of businesses large and small in, in this effort to try to help people out. Now, this is interesting. In the chat room, Stephen M. just tweeted or sent over to us that Verizon's offering free access to TV Japan through their Fios TV service. So and I think it's fascinating. Yeah, oh, that's great. That we see, I think it's fascinating that we see uh, the, how the interconnectedness of our society nowadays not only makes possible massive amounts of relief. We saw with the Red Cross donations, it's so super easy just to donate over your phone, but also in prevention of disaster. There was a, a recent tweet from Scientific American saying, and I forget the number, it was millions or billions of dollars were saved by proper planning and preparation for the tsunami. And in a case where time is of the essence, once you have an earthquake and you need to get the word out that we expect a massive tsunami to happen and you've got to get to high ground, then it matters that all of a sudden everyone in the country is carrying on them a mobile device that keeps them interconnected with the rest of the whole freaking globe. Uh, it would be amazing. I'm sure some fascinating academic articles years from now will come out talking about how different technology has, has essentially shaped this disaster, both in the avoidance of it and in the recovery of it. And it's funny how copyright issues go away uh, when real important issues come along. For instance, TSS Aloic in the chat room points out NHK World is live streaming on Ustream right now. That'd be something they'd be sending a takedown notice for in the past. But we find out what's really important in these situations uh, and, and, and do what's necessary. Also, an uh, interesting thing on, on the... Uh, this is actually from Wired... Uh, talking about some of the games that were supposed to come out. We, we see this happen a lot when natural disasters come along. Uh, games happen to have themes similar to the disaster, and everyone pulls them back. It's not censorship. It's just saying, you know what? This is not the it's right good time taste, uh, what they for like this. So IRM will cease development on its PlayStation game, Zetai Zetsume Toshi 4, uh, City in a Desperate Situation. Uh, and there are a few other PS3 games that are being delayed for release because they do, they deal with earthquakes and disaster themes and I I think that's appropriate I mean I think they they come under criticism for the opposite if they put them out for for being insensitive and trying to profit at something like that oh absolutely and I think uh, you know let's face it the reason these games are popular is because we're all fascinated with massive disasters but then when one happens especially when it's when it's all too real. Uh, we certainly want to dial back our, our involvement. We saw that with 9-11. They pushed back the movie and made some changes to the movie Collateral Damage. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's funny is the little ways. There was a uh, an on-campus cafe called Ground Zero out in uh, uh, Eastern New Mexico University that uh, all of a sudden they were not real happy with that name. And likewise, the band Anthrax for a while, not happy with their name during that scare. And uh, when I went to Whole Foods to get sushi, it was very weird to grab a box of sushi that said tsunami package. And I was like, that's yeah. not cute right now. That's yeah. uh, it's a major disaster. And, it, and it's just coincidence it's just it's just you know they, these these things aren't planned that way but then they strike us uh that way finally uh before we get to some of the user feedback from listeners uh there's a lot of discussion on the internet today about radiation risks about what's happening at the nuclear reactors in japan uh and i want to point to maggie kurth baker's post at boing boing uh she says she's in the process of putting together a longer post that will add some con context to the concept of radiation, but she did actually, uh, she's like, the nuclear scientists are a little busy right now. They're, they're not responding to my emails because I'm not a priority, but 
She actually did get some, uh, some good information from Dr. Catherine Higley, uh, head of Oregon State University's Department of Nuclear Engineering and Radiation Health Physics, uh, and says that information keeps changing from the Fukushima power plant as the situation changes, but one plant worker received a 10-REM dose. That's twice the annual occupational dose, twice what regulators have deemed safe for someone who works in a nuclear power plant. Now, the interesting thing about this, you may think, wow, twice the dose, that's horrible. But that risk translates into a 1% increase into having some sort of cancer or some sort of health risk related to that radiation. So twice the radiation does not mean twice the risk. Obviously, it raises your risk, but 1%, actually 0.5 to 1% is a lot different. So I, I like, Boing Boing is doing a great job, by the way, of covering this and trying to bust through the FUD and say, you know, this is real. Uh, this, is, this is the PR that you're getting. This is what seems to be really happening on, on all sides of the issue, not just like, you know, busting the FUD of, of the power plant, trying to contain the information about what's really happening, but also trying to, to bust through, you know, people overreacting to the radiation issue. Radiation right. is a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but you need to have some accurate sensibility about how bad it is in order to accurately estimate how bad the problem is. Well, let me tell you, if you want to immediately cut past anyone's logic circuits and immediately make them scared, just mention nuclear radiation because it's so counterintuitive. It's this thing you can't see, touch, smell, or perceive in any way that can kill you. Nuclear fallout, of course, is a real problem. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, in, and this is in no way meant to downplay the danger of the situation, but as people start throwing around the word Chernobyl, People really start to get worried, uh, and uh, I, I want to point people to, there's a fantastic speech by Michael Crichton uh, that you can find on YouTube. I believe it's called Fear and Complexity, uh, and he talks about how he wanted to create a global disaster, so he looked up some research on Chernobyl. The initial estimates at the time were that 2,000 people died at the accident and that upwards of 400,000 people died through later complications because of exposure to radiation and cancers and that kind of thing. As he dug into the numbers, uh, the actual numbers turned out that around 50 people died during the actual disaster, most of whom, about 30 of them, were fighting the fire live on the scene, and that's where, that's where they died. And that long-term cancers and infertility rates um, were such that basically only 4,000 to the day. Now, of course, the speech was written a, a while ago, and of course, there's some fact-checking to be done on that. But that is a massive difference from a perceived disaster to the actual number. And the one thing he points out that blew my mind was that the World Health Org Organization did a study on what the biggest impact of, uh, of Chernobyl was, and they concluded that the number one negative impact of Chernobyl was not the radiation exposure, it was the perception of being told that you're going to die young, that you're going to be infertile, you can't have children, and that you, you've got nothing to live for. That's what caused the suicides and the early death rates and the uh, unemployment and the, and the malnutrition. Uh, and in this case, it wasn't that they were given bad radiation, they were given, given bad information. And yeah. as, we, as we do our next flirtation with this, it'll be interesting to see how our hyper-connected society a lot tells the story of, of this potential nuclear disaster. And it's actually the same issue we run in and talking about politics. You run in and talking about radiation, where if you start to say, look, it's not as bad as they're saying, all of a sudden people say, so you're saying radiation is fine. So you're saying there's no risk. And that's not true. That is not what we're no. saying at all. Not at all. Uh, not but at all. there is, you know, trying to find out what is the actual risk. There is a risk. 
But it doesn't. It's not helpful to say like it's radiation and therefore everyone's going to die uh, right. because that doesn't fact, help understand it helpful. either. It's actively harmful. Scientists are very familiar with something they call the nocebo effect. It's a negative placebo. They call it the death bone, the death rattle, where somebody points to you, they give you the evil eye, they say you're going to die, and people, sure enough, die. And so it's important that uh, for, for the maximum health of society that we be smart, that we avoid the radiation, that we handle the problem correctly, but that we not get wrapped up in this disaster um, explosion where we think that, that everything's over and it's the end of the days. And, and what, what you need to do is you need to actually find good sources of information. Leo and I are talking about uh, hopefully doing a triangulation uh, with some nuclear scientists who can actually tell us you know, what is happening, what are the dangers, what are the risks, what do people actually need to be worried about. Uh, in the meantime, you know, once you start to educate yourself on what, uh, you know, the damages, what the real damages of radiation, what the levels are to be worried about, there are a lot of great resources online right now for finding out what the radiation is, not only in Japan, but elsewhere in the world. A live Geiger counter is at alttokyo.com. Updates a graph uh, with data every 60 seconds. There's also a Ustream channel broadcasting the digital display of another Tokyo Geiger counter. That's been uh, almost that's been crashing. It's getting so many viewer emails. Uh, RadiationNetwork.com is a crowdsourced radiation monitoring network of roughly a dozen or so unofficial monitoring sites around the United States. So you got to take that into account. It's very low number, very unofficial, uh, but it's updated every three minutes. And you can participate in that by buying you know radiation detection equipment and going online. That's not something. Every everyone's going to do uh, this, but if you're really into awesome. it that's a great way to learn about stuff this is the the bit torrenting of radiation research here when all of a sudden everybody for example uh their geigercounters.com is out of stock they say due to the disaster in japan orders for geiger counters has outstripped supply this is fantastic and again it's a case where the hyper-connected society we live in make possible large-scale experiments and and monitoring that never would have been possible even just 20 years ago during the chernobyl disaster all right uh let's Hi. let's move on to some of the uh the first person accounts here we got one voicemail to 260 tnt show from jason telling us a little bit about what's going on in his area hey guys this is jason in uh, iwate japan just calling in i've been a fan of your show for a while now um, things haven't been so great here recently. We just got our power back after two days, and uh, the coastline's been destroyed. Uh, a lot of people have lost their lives. Um, we're hanging in here best we can. Water, food, and supplies are short, but I'm sure they'll come back sooner or later. I just wanted to let you guys know that, uh, you know, we don't know how precious things like water, gas, and electricity are until you lose them. So I encourage all the uh, listeners to keep that in mind and continue to support us here in northern Japan as we uh, deal with this tragedy. Thanks again for doing the show, and uh, I'll hope to keep listening to you in the future as soon as we can. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for calling, Jason, and, and I'm glad to hear everything is, is safe for you. I hope you stay safe. Uh, I, I play this also because it's a fascinating first-person account, but also uh, it emphasizes the importance of being prepared as as any kind of disaster like this always does, you know, having your 72-hour plan for whatever it is in your area of the world, whether it's tsunamis or earthquakes or tornadoes uh, or hurricanes, uh, there, there's something dangerous. Maybe it's a snowstorm uh, that can happen. Some kind of natural disaster that you should you should be prepared for. And I think Jason is is a good reminder of that. Uh, and I tell you what, man, it's one of those things where it's very sobering when you think about how many things we totally take for granted. And even the nut jobs who, who for grins, want to get ready for a zombie apocalypse, in a bizarre way, I'm like, at least you guys are saving water. 
and food. You at least are ready for something because yeah. it won't be zombies, but it will be something sooner or later. Preparing for a zombie apocalypse actually prepares you for a lot of other things. Exactly. Uh, so it's not exactly. If that's what it takes to get you interested, then great. Exactly. Go for it. Pretend it's zombies. Yeah. Pretend it's zombies. Just get ready. Just definitely have food, have water, have all that stuff available for your family. On to the email, TNT at twit.tv. Steve in Tokyo uh, says, I'm an English teacher living in Tokyo. Wanted to share some of the website I'm using to stay up to date on the latest event developments. RSOE, uh, and the link is hisz.rsoe.hu. They have an alert map and a list of all disasters around the world, including the information and position of earthquakes soon after they happen, as well as information about the nuclear plants, which are all over the news. Yesterday in Tokyo, radiation levels spiked to about eight times normal background levels for a short time. Although Tokyo is 250 kilometers away from the failing plant in Fukushima, uh, there's always a risk for radioactive materials to be carried on the wind. The Natural Research Lab has a page tracking the radiation in Tokyo at park18.wakwak.com, uh, as well as a live Ustream video of the Geiger counter we were talking about earlier. Aftershocks have been occurring consistently, and as I was writing this, there was a 6.0 that hit about 75 miles southwest of Tokyo. Given everything that's happening combined with planned rolling blackouts, a lot of companies are shutting down for a while, including Sony. Oh, that is amazing. Uh, got another email here. Some news today. No rolling blackouts near Kamiuka in Yokohama. Every area is going to be subjected to this until the end of April, as, start, as stated today. These blackouts take down stoplights, trains, and residential areas. Many people were caught off guard today as train lines either shut down uh, partly through the day or never started. My wife works in Tokyo uh, and, and attempted to go to work but didn't make it. Many people where I work made it in but found the trains would not stop running or would stop running before leaving work. Arrangements were to be made to let them go early as they would have a long walk or a bus ride. Ride sharing is coming up to, so those with cars can help those without to get close to home. Some folks wanted, uh, some folks walked up to four hours Friday to get out of Tokyo. Boy, that's amazing. So thanks to Eric, Steve, and Jason for sharing their stories with us. And thanks to everybody else who's also emailed us from Japan. Uh, these are a selection of the many emails we've been getting along similar lines. And we hope you all stay safe. Uh, we're going to, that, that, that's the special Japanese section of the show for today. Uh, I want to thank everybody, you know, uh, again for participating in that. We move on now to the news feuds. Apple won't be losing dominance in the tablet market anytime soon. In fact, competitors may have a hard time clearing their inventory. Market researcher Display Search said Apple will likely be dominant tablet maker through 2012 when the playing field will level out. The company pretends that in 2016, 260 million tablets will be shipped, a 333% increase from estimated 2011 sales. Internet Explorer 9 arrived yesterday and was greeted with warm reviews. It's been nearly two years since IE8, and it looks like the time spent developing 9 paid off. Internet Explorer 9 brings much better web standard support, better performance, and hardware acceleration for faster graphics and animations on supported PCs. Reviewers seem to also be taken by the new minimalist interface. And no Clippy. No Clippy. Clippy's been dead for a long time. Never bring him back. <laughs> new Adobe Flash Player, new Adobe Flash Player vulnerability. They kind of go together. Adobe uh, announced a flaw that may cause crashes and potentially permit the hijacking of systems. The issue also affects the company's Reader and Acrobat software products. Adobe has found it's being actively exploited in the wild, too, via a Swift file embedded in an Excel spreadsheet. A uh, fix will come in a patch at the beginning of next week. 
Uh, according to Bloomberg, Google plans to install thousands of Verifone near-field communication readers, the ones that allow wireless payments at merchants in New York and San Francisco. Google's test, quote, may combine a consumer's financial account information, gift card balances, store loyalty cards, and coupon subscriptions on a single NFC chip on a phone and begin within four months. Rumors are also out that the next iPhone will not have NFC. Wow, combining uh -huh. everything. I can't imagine anything going wrong with that. A lot of controversy today from developers who accuse Apple of intentionally slowing down web apps in order to nudge people towards the App Store. The issue revolves around the fact that JavaScript acceleration exists in the browser in iOS, but not in the rest of the OS. That means a web app saved as a link on the home screen will run slower than one run in the browser. And the debate is whether this is a bug or a feature. Hey, are you uh, paying to watch a movie on the web? You probably gave your money to Netflix. MPD claims Netflix owns 61% of the market for digital movies, with Comcast running a distant second at 8%. There's a three-way tie for third between DirecTV, Time Warner Cable, and Apple. MPD also says digital video, quote, now makes up one quarter of all home video volume. Wow. That's getting to be real right there. Yeah. The National Cable and Telecommunications Association, that's the uh, cable's industry trade organization, has a new boss. He's a familiar face. Former FCC chair Michael Powell will become the cable industry's top lobbyist. He replaces former National Cable and Telecommunications Association President Kyle McSlero, who said last week he'll be joining Comcast. Oh. What a surprise. <laughs> Goodbye, Google Gears. Google's first attempt at providing offline access to web apps. Google is removing the software from Chrome, indicating the definite wind down of the project. Almost said wind down. Here will, here will be no new Gears pieces. And newer browsers such as Firefox 4 and Internet Explorer 9 will not be supported. We will also be removing Gears from Chrome in Chrome 12. Gears is survived by standards like HTML5's application cache. So many technologies dying these days. All right, let's uh, finish up with the Nintendo 3DS getting its first commercials. Uh, and Gadget has both the UK and the US version. Uh, and frankly, the UK, UK usually has good commercials, but the, this is... They're, they didn't do a good job with this one. It's a little retro. Yeah. No, let's, uh, we're going to show the U.S. version. We'll show the U.S. one? Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, right here. Because that one's more fun. And they, it's hard on a 2D screen to try to promote a, uh, a 3D. I think they do a good job of yeah. conveying the, the sentiment, though. And come on. They don't do a job. Oh, there we go. So it's all perspective stuff that they do in this one, right? But notice that you never get, you're always either coming into or out of the screen. Right. So the screen is not seen as an object. Yeah, see, he's back there. It's like he's in the scene. No glasses required. Nintendo 3DS. Take a look inside. All right, nice now what's great is that it conveys visually some of the aspects of the 3DS, the fact that there's no glasses, that it's like you're looking right inside this magical world inside your 3DS. Can we just hear the beginning of the British one? It's so British. It's so very different from the way we would do it in America. This Same time. is the new Nintendo 3DS. Discover an amazing world of 3D without the need for glasses. It'll make you smile. <laughs> Test out your skills on Super Street Fighter It will Fighter sit in your hand. And challenge other users and it to looks like game. any other thing. Or fall in love with the adorable... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, enough of that. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
<laughs> you put in a cartridge and you're able to play the game. You sit on the tube and you laugh with other people. Yeah. No more boring lift rides. <laughs> It'll throw your spanner away and joy. All right, on to the calendar. Apple is postponing the iPad 2 launch in Japan. That's one thing we didn't mention in our, our Japan coverage. Uh, yeah, the, a, a, a smart move for many, many reasons. Uh, but they're, they're going to wait until things settle down there before they, they actually bring the iPad uh, to Japan. A lot of people are speculating it may get delayed anyway internationally just because of supply issues. HTCs arrive uh, up for a $50 pre-order at Wirefly. You will need a new uh, Sprint account and a two-year contract, but a pretty nice price. Verizon is waiving the activation fees for the Zoom and Galaxy Tab if you buy it from them. And that's retroactive to March 1st. So if you bought it uh, March 1st or beyond, uh, you won't have to pay the $35 activation fee. Verizon Wireless also confirms that the HTC Thunderbolt will be coming on St. Patty's Day this Thursday, March 17th, for $250 subsidized. Mm. Sony Ericsson Spain confirmed that the Xperia Play coming to Spain April 1st, not an April Fool's joke, and it will cost you 649 euros. I believe that's an unlocked price. Oh, yeah. T-Mobile Sidekick 4G from Samsung has been announced, so the Sidekick is not dead. It's going to be an Android phone and coming later this spring. We're not going to be running out of spring pretty soon here. Apple's Phil Schiller says on Twitter that the white iPhone also coming this spring. Uh, and finally, uh, we haven't been looking at this lately, but also, we're thinking coming this spring, or maybe very early summer, the new Twit Studios, which you can watch at dropcam.com slash demo and see it get built. We have a, a camera up in the corner, and you can, you can watch uh, basically the Tech News Today area and Leo's set uh, and a little bit of the, the main uh, hallway through the, through the sets uh, as they build them up. Uh, and it's uh, it's starting to look like a real studio. There's lights hanging from the ceiling and, and things that don't look like drywall. It's incredible. Yeah, I am so excited. Together. How did you guys, did you hire a designer for all that? How do you decide, like, what an awesome blank canvas? I'm so excited to know what the studio is going to look like. Yeah, Roger Ambrose, the guy who designed the screensaver set, the second rev of the screensaver set, is upstairs right now. We, we oh. actually disturbed him while we were doing our prep <laughs> That's true. Uh, earlier, but he, he is working hard to uh, to design it. He's the one making sure that we, it's going to look good, and uh, I'm Isn't really excited. Is that just right, it. though, that he would be the one to design the studio? This is going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, awesome to have you along. Thanks for uh, uh, coming along, and, and, and you know, basically, you and me and Jason were the show today, so yeah. I couldn't have done it without you. It was a, a three-man operation all on one tightrope, and we just made it to the other side. So now I'm going to crack open a cold one and do frame rate with you. That's right. We're going to do frame rate right after we record this. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, Twit.tv slash TNT is the website. 260-TNT-SHOW is the phone number. And you can email us, TNT, at twit.tv. Uh, big round of applause for Jason Howell, who like okay. had to fly on one of those cramped planes. He's really tall, and yet came right in. Oh, Produce yeah. the show as if nothing happened. Whoa. I know it's crazy to think. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye.